Hi, I'm currently in the emergency department. I'm a double amputee and I'm in kidney failure. All they're offering me is Tylenol. Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. We are so grateful to all of our patrons and honestly and truly we are humbly humbly supported by your support i would like to thank all of our new patrons lori lori g kayler allison julie regina susan nicole shelley nicole again june gregory j alicia thank you bruce thank you wendy thank you joyce paul diana jarrett marjorie Black, Hunter Stevenson, there's a name I know. We have Lori, thank you, Lori, yeah. thank you, Kelly, Pesla5439, Philip, Cindy, Kizzy, Miranda, Jody, DNK, Kathleen, Mark Daly, another name I'm familiar with, Delane, Samantha, thank you, Lisa, thank you, Bonnie, thank you, Michelle, thank you, Gracie May, Laura, Gina, Leslie, Gary, Noel, Christy, and Sydney, we thank you. Bev, who do you have on your end as our new patrons? I have Diane, Carol, Paula, Donna, Barbara, Sally, Ali, Mary, James, Gordana, Sarah, Bruce, Yvonne, Kathleen, Ginger, Carol, Dora, Brandy, Ruth, Laura, Paula, Anna, Cheryl, Nikki, Jennifer, Heather, Laura, Heidi, Robin, Gabrielle, Pamela, Brittany, Evie, Linda, Joy, Erica, Jet, Terry, Colleen, Eva, Julie, Allison, Kaylor, Lori G, Lori, Mac, Lenora, Beth, Elizabeth, Trish, David, Karen, Donna, Ginger, Michelle, Deborah, Stephanie, Jennifer, Susan, Jessica, Brenda, Sherry, and Lori. Daniel, Tom, Julia, Stephanie, Lanetta, uh, Melissa, Stephanie, Stevie, Selwyn, and Tim, and PTSD Advocate. If we missed you, please reach out to me and let me know. We are so humbled by all of your uh, signing up. We are so grateful for each one yeah. of you. Oh my God, I have chills. I can't believe all these people I know. I know. This is so wow. exciting. Just a quick disclaimer that we will be discussing suicide today due to untreated pain and losing a doctor who was prescribing pain medication. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call 911, reach out to your doctor. You can also use the number 988. I believe it is a behavioral health number that you can call and text. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Patient Forum podcast. This is part two with Dr. Josh Bloom. If you missed part one, the link will be in the show notes. Josh, you've also written about Tylenol and its efficacy for pain. We're hearing from women who are undergoing radical mastectomies and only have been given IV Tylenol. They go home and they sob in their pillow. Are there studies that you know of showing that it's effective for that type of pain? Well, as a matter of fact, there are studies that show just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, I took a look at the Cochrane Review's acetaminophen Tylenol for a number of painful conditions. And let's see, what did I write about? Acute and chronic lower back pain, 
back pain and hip and knee uh, arthritis, headaches, colds, tooth pain, fever. That was about it. So the long and the short of it is there's no evidence that Tylenol works for anything except for reducing fever in kids and for headache. Here's where you have to uh, throw in the details. For a certain type of headache, it was shown that 59% of the people who took 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol were pain-free two hours after they took it. So their, their headache disappeared. That's, that's unacceptable. I don't want to wait two hours for my uh, headaches to disappear. Exactly. So 59% is pretty good until you pull up the other data, which is 49% of the placebo uh, <laughs> said the same thing. So it was either placebo or their headaches just went away. So you can conclude that 10 Tylenol is helpful in 10% of people to get rid of their headaches in two hours and nothing else. It failed for every other kind of pain relief. The only exception being when it was combined with something like ibuprofen, and there seems to be an additive effect. And I've noticed that when, when I've taken the two together. But on its own, it is worthless. And this whole new thing about IV Tylenol, uh, Jeff Singer and I just wrote something in US Today about surgeons using IV Tylenol for post-surgical pain, which y you might as well just sprinkle paprika on their heads. Uh, it, it does nothing. And I've, I've, I've researched this also, and it is absolutely thoroughly useless. IV or I anything or orally or wherever else you want to shove it, it yeah. doesn't take care of pain and certainly not severe pain. So this oh, is just awful. It is. It's so, I mean, Josh, people, we, we've had amputations. We've had people call us. I just had my leg amputated. The doctor told me that I shouldn't need anything more than Tylenol. Hip replacement, knee replacement, you name it. But you know, I, of course, I go back to the women who are undergoing radical mastectomies and they're being left to suffer. And then when they ask for something for pain, they're looked upon like they're crazy. Like, what do you, why do you need anything for pain? I just gave you Tylenol and gabapentin. I gave you all of this, these pain relievers, and yet you're still complaining. It's absolutely disgusting. And, and I got to tell you, back in the day when I was in the hospital, IV Tylenol was not cheap. It was expensive. And they would give it to people sparingly. Not sure what happened other than, you know, I understand grade to write a script for an opioid. We have poor Dr. Edelglass was just sentenced to 12 years. He's a little old Jewish man. And they, they, they shoved away, just like Dr. Bauer, 86 years old. Let's talk about all the articles that you have discussed Andrew Kolodny, mocking Andrew Kolodny, <laughs> because those seem to bring me the most joy. <laughs> Before we get to that, let me comment on the doctors and the hospital and also medical groups and walk-in clinics. They're discouraged, actively discouraged from prescribing opioids just because it looks bad or they're getting pressure from those evil bastards at the uh, DEA or they're ignorant about Tylenol. And a lot of doctors are. They think it works. So I think the only way that 
people are going to get any kind of relief from what they've gone through is just start suing the doctors and the hospitals. Now, I don't blame the doctors because they're getting pressure not to prescribe. And you better believe there's a list the hospital administration's looking at of who's prescribing what. So, you know, doctors, I it, it would be a, a terrible ethical burden to be a physician now, a, a surgeon or a pain management physician, because you know you're doing the wrong thing, but you can't help it because you don't want to go to jail. So yeah, uh, yeah. you got to look at where this pressure is coming from. Yeah. It's coming from up high. It's coming from the White House. It's yeah. coming from Congress, the DEA, the Department of Justice, Homeland Security. All of these idiots are con- are are still convinced that a bottle of Vicodin is is the killer. And of course, we all know that that's just false. And it's not. They're not backing down. Like you know that. Like you said, these doctors are getting these report cards or pressure from all of those places: Department of Health, State Medical. DOJ, you know, all of them, like you mentioned, but they're not backing down. So when I see these articles coming out every single day about where the settlement funds are going, they're, they're, a lot of it's going to these same companies, these nonprofits that are pushing this false narrative, and it's going to end up hurting and killing more people. And it's ridiculous, like when, you know, when someone's sadly, if someone loses someone because they bought what they thought was Percocet, and it's not and it's illicit fentanyl, and then they make prescription drug abuse their platform, it doesn't make any sense to me because what they're pushing is for removal of any safe supply, which means no one's ever going to get a real pill. I mean, it it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to you, but it makes perfect sense on the other side. How? Because this is being driven by politics and money. So you're running for office. So you're automatically a liar to begin with. If you run on the platform that our pain patients are being undertreated and that we need to use more opioids, you're going to get destroyed. So you Yeah, I I I think that. that was I think that was the case a few years ago, but I'm starting to see I think I think we're ready for change because now I've got local lawmakers contacting me to to help their constituents find doctors. And I I wasn't I I wasn't receiving these calls 3 years ago, but I think I really think 2023 is going to be the year for people to be heard. However, I don't foresee any change in the next two or three years. I don't either. Hope, but I met with the Rhode Island Department of Health and and I've been after them for five or six years. I can get into the health department and sit down uh, across for them. And now, you know, basically the conversation was nobody leaves this room until there's a solution. And I don't know what the solution looks like, but I do know that the change has to come from the health department. The change has to come from lawmakers. And I almost feel like doctors will need to be sued. So they do start treating pain again. But I I don't, I don't know what a solution looks like because this indoctrination is so, so thick and so much money has been invested off the backs of pain, patient suffering and suicide. And if you did speak out a few years ago, promoting opioids as safe and effective, that would be political suicide. But we are starting to see more awareness being brought to it. But I'll tell you what, Josh, mainstream media keeps me hidden for a reason probably the most vocal patient advocate in the country and people either love me or hate me. I don't give a shit because what these people at prop have done, they have capitalized off of suicide. Like pain patients are, they're blowing their heads off. And that's what I think why Bev and I are so 
invested in this because we don't get paid doing what we're doing. And you don't make a whole lot of money doing what you're doing, Josh. I should say not. (laughs) (laughs) But we're all on the same page. You know, people have capitalized off of the pain community suffering and it's got to stop. But I, I, I didn't mean to segue. I wanted to ask you a few questions about Andrew Kolodny. I organized a protest outside Brandeis University, and I asked him to come down from his office. But he was found under his desk, rocking back and forth. Oh, did um, he pee himself? <laughs> he did. He tinkled his pants. You know, we called. We're like, come on, Andrew, come downstairs. Come meet, you know, come meet the folks. We all drove here. We had people that, you know, flew in. To attend the protest, he wouldn't. He wouldn't leave his office. Uh, have you ever? Um, has he ever responded to any of your articles? Once, and it was 2016, and by by then I'd really gotten wind of all kinds of problems for pain patients, and I wrote a, a an um, op-ed again in the New York Post. Just I'm in New York, and it gets a wide readership, so I I. I put a lot of things in there. And it talked about what was happening and it was about to happen to pain patients. And the editor there said, I I need you to write something about the other side. And I said, okay, fine. So I wrote a sentence about physicians for torturing America or whatever they're called and how they maintain this, that, or the other thing. I could pull it up and read it to you if necessary. Their methods for citing evidence or questionable. The next morning, I get a call from Kolodny, and I need to be a little careful what I say here, but he was super nice, started warning me about all the evil people on the other side, would probably be you guys, would (laughs) would end up being me, and if he doesn't hate me more than anyone in the world, I've failed my entire life. And he told me a he started to give me a bunch of facts. And, and I said, oh, Andrew, the first was about the composition of the work, the committee that you know did the work leading up to the 2016 disaster by the CDC. And uh, he said, well, you know, we had like, you know, no one involved there. And I, I said, well, I, I got this right up in front of me here and it, and it says otherwise. And he kind of went hamana, 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 like Jackie Gleason used to do. And he he said something like, well, can you promise me that you'll at least take a fair look at this before you criticize us again? And I said, no, I can't, because I've already been looking and I I cannot promise you that at all. Well, I kept my non-promise, did I not? The only contact I've ever had with him. But I know he cites me in some of his talks. He does. Yeah. Industry funded and all of that. Oh, yeah. Well... Boy, did I give it to what's her name, Few uh, Berman? Yeah. Uh, when she debated uh, Jeff Singer in New York. Uh huh. Doctor Few Berman, I uh, just noticed that you made a mistake or you used a trick, and it was you mentioned one hundred five thousand opioid deaths, but you didn't you didn't specify that this is almost all from fentanyl and uh, and and heroin. Was that a was that a trick or was it just a mistake? She babbled something for a while, and then she said, keep in mind, American Council on Science and Health is heavily industry funded, and I had her dead at that point, and I wrote an article about what a hypocrite she was, and she was either a liar or or, um, ignorant, and I showed our funding. 
because it's pathetically little. It's almost all from individuals. Yeah, they don't care, Josh. They just, that's their go-to and it's been the go-to since at least 2008. And hasn't been mentioned since. Oh, yours hasn't? About you? They don't not a word about industry funded. Because I, I tore that to shreds and I Good. made her, I made her look like a lying fool. Good. Look that article up. I believe it's called uh, a surgeon and an anti-opioid activist walk into a bar. I remember that. Yeah. We'll put the link in our show notes for people. That was an excellent article. And Josh, do you know, she has a new podcast out, Few Berman and Farmed Out and guess who's funding it? It would be Kaiser and Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yeah. Really? She's getting like, I think it's one podcast a month and over, I think it's over $20,000 to do one podcast a month by, by payers. So kind of industry funded in my mind. Well, that's, that's chicken shit compared to what she got from, I guess, Wyeth or Pfizer or whatever. I mean, when Yeah. And she, like, she was asked to speak at that. What was it? McGaskill. When McGaskill did those two investigations of drug companies and after the first one, when they did a hearing, and Few Berman was was there. She didn't give any kind of disclosures for conflicts of interest. And at that hearing, it's still on YouTube. She said, "You know what, McGaskill? I think that the, what you have to do is you really have to look at all of those pain organizations. You need to look at them and do another investigation because they're fake. They're not." actual pain patients ever they're always funded by industry and they're the ones that caused this opioid crisis and McGaskill was like okay I'll do that and she did and she did and the same people who donated the law firms who donated to McGaskill hide like millions to do with that investigation are the same ones who got millions or not billions from opioid litigation so it's really pathetic that they go off on industry funding when someone might take a thousand dollars when they're making millions and billions of right yeah they went after u.s pain foundation because they took money for the heating pads which is yeah it just they're, they're just and they meet they attack us they respond with these ad hominem yeah, we're not paid by pharma we're not paid by opioid lobby but Dr. glad to hear that she never went after you again that's that's good to know because i know kolodny and she they love to mention you and not necessarily by name always but acsh and how it's right and exactly why am i doing what i'm doing right because we made thirty thousand dollars i believe (laughs) or something like that in industry funding which she makes sitting on her ass (laughs) writing up some brief for for a couple of days yeah, and as an expert witness in litigation, right? Yeah. That's what does she make an hour? Five hundred, seven hundred, and in the five hundred to one thousand um, dollar range. Hour. And, and I don't even know the writers don't know where the funding comes from because they don't want to color anything. Yeah. Sure. But still, twenty thousand dollars from Pop Tarts or General Electric, or I don't even know where it came from. It sure wasn't from a, a an opioid producing company. Yeah. So why do I do what I do? Well, they have no answer. Zero. They can't touch me because we're clean. You know, we're, we're a grassroots individual donor funded organization. And anybody that says otherwise is a liar. Yeah, that's what it was, Josh. He called you an AstroTurf organization. That's what he said about your organization. Right. Of course. But I've called him. I've called him a lot worse, haven't I? Yeah, but it seems like his is the AstroTurf organization. I would imagine. Right. 
Well, of course it is. Yeah. Okay. So you're probably going to want to get into the interview then, I, I suppose, right? I'm looking on your website, American Council on Science and Health, folks. This is really important. You're tuning into the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. Go to this website because I have referenced so many of Josh's articles over the years. And this was done by uh, Dr. Jeff Singer, who we had on our podcast a few weeks ago. Don't forget, check out that podcast and Josh Bloom. And that was in Newsweek. And then you had another article, Tylenol Light Will a Safer New Useless Painkiller <laughs> Replace an Old Dangerous One. Lots of great articles on your website, Josh. I should point out, I mean, I got to give us a, a shout out. It's acsh.org. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the more readers we have, the happier we are. I estimate I've gotten about 10 million over the years. So a lot of people read what we write, including all the the major news organizations. Yeah, and, so, and we post, I post all of your articles on our main Facebook page, which has over 25,000 members and chapters in all 50 states. So whenever you write something, I always tweet it. I always post it on our website. I share it on LinkedIn because I believe in your work. Yeah. Uh, and I can't really say that about a lot of people. I yeah. trust you, Josh. You make me laugh. And I think you're honest. Then there's not a lot of honest people in this space. Josh, can I ask you something? I listened to a recent that recent interview of yours on the podcast of, at ACSH, and you said two things that I would love to talk about. The first one was, I guess the host, I forget his name, was saying basically that it was well-intentioned what the CDC said, what the CDC did, and that this was all done to really protect people from addiction. And you kind of chimed in and you were like, well, I don't, I don't really think so anymore. I think a lot of this wasn't done in good intention, was really just done for money. When, when did that shift come to you? Like, when did you stop thinking it was well-intentioned? I'm actually going to play the clip from that actual interview from ACSH, where they asked Josh the question so you could hear word for word what he said before he answers my question here. Ostensibly, the idea behind these regulations is we're trying to protect public health and keep people from addiction and ruining their lives. And, you know, it seems to me that if they're in so much pain that they want to die, <laughs> you know, maybe we've uh, we've gone the wrong direction here. You know what I'm saying? I think you're operating under the wrong assumption, though. The longer I'm in this game, the more I believe that this witch hunt against pain medications is driven by money, public health they could possibly care less. So, you know, that's a pretty strong statement, but, you know, these things I know, and I will repeat them. There's a group called the Physicians for Responsible uh, Opioid Prescribing, and they hate me. You know, I can't even describe a word. And I'm after them all the time with good reason, because it's a self-appointed group of academic experts most of whom haven't seen a patient unless they happen to walk by one on the street in, in decades. So th these aren't even people that know the damn thing about drugs. And their game is to write and lecture about the evils of opioids, how they don't work, how about how they started the, the overdose death crisis and how they're still responsible for it, which is utter nonsense. And then they become expert witnesses. 
where they earn between $500 and $1,000 an hour testifying against manufacturers, distributors, pharmacies, all the deep pockets. And they extort money from these companies by using a bunch of sleazebag lawyers. So I can't say that's the entire story behind this, but you have to remember that. Well, you don't remember because you don't know in the first place that the working group that came up with the 2016 guidelines, which is basically this, this group was, uh, it was filled with prop people. That's physicians for responsible opioid prescribing. So the question is who decided to form this committee? And, uh, I got a pretty good idea of that. And how was it overloaded with anti-opioid people so that their recommendation to the CDC, which the FDA rejected by the way, and was ignored had decided anti-opioid uh, been to it. So that may not be the entire story, but that is certainly correct. And that, and this I can document with my eyes closed. Now, at some point, this is all going to come out, and I'm hoping people go to jail for what they did. I'm not going to name names, but maybe I'll visit. <laughs> Bring us some Tylenol. <laughs> now back to our interview with Josh when he answers my question about when he changed his mind about whether or not they had good intentions with all of these new opioid policies. It's been gradual, but I think it really hit me. I mean, I knew Kalodney was making a ton of money helping the dirtbag lawyers, Sue Johnson and Johnson. But then when I started researching Few Berman, it, it, really, it really hit me that she's got some nerve considering the amount of money she made. And that's just one case. It was, I don't know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars or what it was. She's got some nerve talking about corruption. So then it just began to dawn on me. And obviously I've got a bunch of activists that write to me and their general sense is that not just these two, but others in prop are making a small fortune as consultants. And so, you know, it's, there's, Prop really give a shit about if people are dropping dead from overdoses? No, they don't. Because if they did, they would fess up that their policy's been wrong all along. And that if you provided more Percocet for the general population, the drop, the deaths would drop and by a lot too. Absolutely. I definitely agree with, I mean, for sure that, that if they cared, they would start saying, you know what, we were wrong, we misled people, but instead they're doubling down. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is suicide. So we talk a lot about suicide due to pain. We have someone on our board whose husband tragically took his life when his meds were cut off. And Kaladni and some others. Aunt, wait, and Josh, she sued and the family, the jury awarded her family $7 million. Yeah, we had some other people who have recently taken their lives. And I heard you say something that I've never heard you say before um, in this recent podcast. And you said, not a week goes by that you don't hear, or a month, either not a week or a month, I forget which one you said, that you don't hear from a pain patient venting to you asking 
what would be the best way for them to take their lives. Like I was, I was shocked. I didn't even realize that they were reaching out to you like that. We hear from them daily. Like it's either suicide or the street. It's either suicide or the street. But how many patients are you actually hearing from discussing suicide? Twitter comments after our articles, and sometimes they're hundreds. Emails directly to me and emails to our organization, which go indirectly to me. I would say I've looked at dozens of people who are either asking for advice about committing suicide or telling me they're going to. I've got one woman now who wants to write a goodbye letter because she's she has it's all planned out with a date. Yeah, I'm trying to decide what to do with that, this kind of thing. It's uh, so I'm just kind of. Are you going to write about it, Josh? Are you going to write about this woman? I'm planning on publishing her letter if she 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 wants to oh say goodbye in an appropriate way and make sure she uh, lays out blame about what happened to her and why. Was she stable before? Like, I'm assuming, was she a pain patient who had medication? And of was course. And then now she's not, right? Yep. Yeah, that's the story we hear all the time. And I think one of the most offensive things that Kalani pushes and some of these other people who push this narrative is, they claim that suicide due to pain is bogus and a farce. And the only reason that they'd ever take their lives is due to withdrawal, which is not what the studies are showing. The studies are showing that I think we're at 14 or 15 studies now showing the harm of forced tapers. And it's for up to two years after. So it's not happening for the most part when they're withdrawing. It's happening when their pain returns and they just can't take it anymore. But of course, I hear this constantly. Yeah, they yeah. were able. That's the thing. Like, why are we talking? Why are we even saying whether they should or shouldn't be on this medication right now? The fact is they are and they're stable. So leave them alone. Why are you pushing people to the street who never would have gone before? Why? Politics, money, government overstep, power moves, all the wrong reasons. Read Tom Wolf, Bonfire of the Vanities. It's how everything gets done for the wrong reason in politics. This is what's going on here. So it's politics, money, and power. And the pain patients are replaceable pawns. There'll always be more. So they're the... Um, Collateral damage. Yeah. Yeah. And like we said, this this was intended. When they say unintended, because I have to use the word unintended all the time when I'm at the state house, like a dummy, I have to say unintended until I slip and I say, I, I can't say it anymore. It was intended. Well, it was intended. Knew. Claudia, they knew when this 2016 guidelines were, were starting to come out and that whole secretive nonsense. We have on our website content, all the letters these organizations wrote saying, you can't do this. You're going to hurt people. People are going to die. So when they come out and say, oh, we didn't know, that's bullshit. They knew. They knew. They were told. And, the, you know, anyone who said that, anyone who who went to the CDC and said, or even on the on the docket said, these are going to hurt people. What did they do? Andrew Kolodny wrote a study with Caleb Alexander, another profiteer who has his own consulting firm for legal consulting. And they wrote a study, they analyzed all the comments on the 2016 CDC docket to see which ones were industry funded. And that's what they did. They didn't analyze their comments. They didn't analyze the ones who were funded by this opioid elimination industry. They just, that's their go-to. They knew, they were told, they didn't care. And they still don't seem to care because it really does seem like they're doubling down. So I don't know, Josh, do you think it is ever going to turn around or no? I don't know. I mean, yes, but not nearly, <laughs> not nearly soon enough. And I, I just hope I live long enough yeah. to see 
Justice Department looking into what, if anything, the prop members did wrong. I, I dream and, of that. And the money Gosh. they the money they took. The and, money. And if any of those guys go to jail, I'm going to bring them flowers. I don't care if I have to fly <laughs> yeah. to Fiji to do it. Right, right. And, you know, this is this is why so many of us stay involved. I tell them not treating pain with opioids was a science experiment gone bad. This was all bad. This was driven by bad, dishonest people who don't care. And, you know, we've had uh, former patients of Andrew Kolodny reach out to us, which is a riot. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I keep asking him in my articles, when when did you last see your patients? Do you have a medical license in what state? When's the mm -hmm. last time you wrote a prescription? Yep. Do you, do you actually have this information? He's licensed in New York from what we know. And the people who have reached out to us were his patients at Phoenix House. Phoenix House, yeah. yeah. It's when oh, okay. So yeah, right. I'm talking about patients as a psychiatrist or an MD. no. No, no, I don't. I don't. Right. I've not heard from. I, any I don't even think he Do knows they out a prescription pad. No. No, Did he can't. ever? I mean, he always says that he was seeing patients. When? I guess what he said was it was before he worked for New York, like health hygiene, whatever he worked for there, and then be, I or right around that time before he went to Phoenix House. But I'm like you. I've never heard seen any evidence whatsoever that he did any of that. I think. Well, we didn't we send a FOIA request for to New York to see his license? Many, seen, many. Yeah, we have seen a license, I think. Even if he did, that's twenty five years ago. Exactly, and exactly. and probably thinks that bloodletting is um, <laughs> appropriate. Uh, yeah. arsenic for, for syphilis. You know, you, yeah, you, 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 you lose a little something when you don't practice medicine for a quarter of a century. I'm sorry. <laughs> of course, of course. And making millions and millions and millions as an expert witness and then as like advisor to things like, I don't know, dope sick. Oh, dope sick. Yeah, let's not forget when he was on uh, Danny Strong's uh, set of dope sick. I mean, yeah. Because Josh, people <sighs> believe this bullshit. I mean, they really believe it. I meet with doctors and then before you know it, everybody has opioid-induced hyperalgesia and they believe oh. That everybody has developed OIA. I'm glad you said that because, Josh, as a scientist, how do you view opioid induced hyperalgesia? What do you think about it? I can't, I have a professional opinion on it. Okay. But what I can say is if you're getting too high a dose, it's pretty easy to lower it. And and that's the thing. Like any anything I've actually seen true evidence that it exists is from in in hospice patients, and they said they fixed it immediately to by yeah, switch it's... the opioid. But we just heard. So we just heard from at University of Michigan, where they're also funded by Blue Cross Blue Shield. They just did a uh, four videos on buprenorphine for chronic pain, Suboxone for chronic pain, and the guy literally like word for word said opioid induced hyperalgesia. We have no evidence to support it. We know we don't know that if it exists or not, but tell your patients that that's what they have because it gives a really good reason to, to switch them to Suboxone. That's what yeah, you're telling. Lie to your that's, patient. Uh, th that's the big, that's one of the biggest piles of bull bullshit that's lying around the, uh, the pain universe now. I mean, come on, please. Your dose is too high. Somehow it screws with your head and the pain gets worse. Okay, let's say that's even true. So you deal with it. You, you drop the dose. I mean, come on. Don't, don't or, give me this. Or, because a lot of these people, they're on, they were on two pain pills a day. And yeah, the doctor, and they're like, oh, my, I'm just, 
I'm not getting relief. And the doctor's saying, well, you have opioid-induced hyperallergy. I'm like, no, you friggin' idiot. She's under-medicated because she takes two pain pills a day. Give her a third. Yeah. And and then watch it disappear. They're they're using OIH to cut patients off who are stable. So they're saying to them, oh, you'll get better if you stop. Even if their pain medicine is working, they're telling them they have it. But this was in every... Every single transcript I've read or complaint for litigation against opioid manufacturers or makers, whatever, uh, they mention OIH. So I think opioid-induced hyperalgesia was definitely, without a doubt, part of the litigation narrative created probably by lawyers, I would imagine, because it's mentioned everywhere, all over the place, yet there's absolutely no evidence that it exists in chronic pain patients. Not unless anecdotal, but they even them, they're like, well, I'm not sure if this is what it is. Then rotate the medication and you'll know. Yeah, that's that's been a red herring ever since I first heard it. Yeah. It's just an excuse. And like like Kolodny knows about he knows about that. <laughs> right. And of course and, of- and nothing else. I mean, come on. Of, of course, right? Because it's magic. Suboxone, bup is the only medication that not only doesn't cause opioid-induced hyperalgesia, it also cures it. Did you know that's what they say now? Suboxone. It cures it and it doesn't cause it because it's magic. It's a magic molecule. <laughs> hey, Josh, I'm going to ask you because, you know, we're all getting up there in age. Hey. Are, well, Bev, that's the youngest. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, are, do you worry about your pain going uh, you know ignored as a matter of fact i'm one of you guys now but okay well to a lesser extent mm-hmm. my pain is from a whole bunch of old injuries and surgeries almost all of them self-inflicted by accidents and doing stupid shit so that's my fault and you know as you age arthritis does not get better it gets worse so these injuries sometimes they're painful and then about a year ago i was no longer able to take Advil, which worked wonders because it would all of a sudden start burning holes in my stomach. So now I'm getting into a predicament where I'm relying on Tylenol and opioids. Fortunately, Celebrex is helpful for me and doesn't screw my stomach up too badly. So I'm able to get 60 Tramadol every two months. And I use them sparingly with Tylenol, maybe Advil if necessary, but I'm doing a balancing act now. And if, if for some reason I can't get the tramadol anymore, I don't anticipate that, but now I'm in, I'm in all kinds of trouble, just like the rest of it. You know, I don't have the severe pain that they do, but you know, it's hitting home. What is it is. And now because of the new guidelines about acute pain, instead of it making anything better for pain patients, it made it worse and really just expanded it to all kinds of acute issues, post-op pain, even cancer. Sickle cell patients haven't been excluded. They get treated horribly. Like it's just, it's just made it worse. It's made all of it worse. And now aren't, don't you think Claudia, we're hearing from, from more post-op patients who aren't actually chronic pain patients and they just find us because they had major surgeries and they're given Tylenol or like gabapentin or Benadryl. We've had, we had, remember that person who got a full colectomy and she was given Benadryl? Yeah. Yeah. That's the latest thing. Now Benadryl all of a sudden, Josh, I had an attorney that I work with called, I saw him in the grocery store and he's like, Oh, I got to tell you something that happened. My wife had a (laughs) C-section and the baby wasn't, eight hours old she just had a you know she was gutted 
right? And then she asked for something for pain. And they said, Oh, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And she said, what, what don't you do? Well, we don't write scripts for opiates. Uh And he said, I had to threaten to sue them. He's like, if you don't get my, my wife, something for pain, I'm suing all of you in this room. Plus the hospital, you're all getting sued by me, the largest personal injury attorney in the state of Rhode Island. And I'll tell you, she not only did she have her pain treated, she was discharged with the script for opiates. He's like, holy shit, I had to threaten to sue these crazy fucks. He said, what is he's like, Claudia, I didn't believe you when I first learned about your advocacy. I thought, see, people think we're we're being extra, right? We're dramatic. Oh, no, baby. You're yeah. uh, Josh, Josh, before I wrap up, any last minute thought before I wrap up? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I could go on for hours about this. It's it's very upsetting for my own health, my family's health. Whoever's going to get get into a car accident is going to have to suffer. But perhaps the worst is the the post-op because what? About zero people have been addicted to more <laughs> become addicted to morphine for a couple of days after an operation. Yeah. inexcusable. Josh, I remember and, the article you wrote about lavender versus morphine and you <laughs> ended it with you keep the lavender, I'll take the morphine. <laughs> well, seriously, I mean the, the morphine maybe some people get sick from it, but it's pretty well tolerated and you know what? If you're in agony, give somebody the little button to push whenever they're in pain. And two yeah. days later, they'll be okay. Yeah. Are you just, disca- I want to ask one last question. Are you discouraged? Yeah. Mostly by the hospital behavior. Yeah. But let me tell you what you guys can do. Yeah, please this- tell us, Josh, please. <laughs> All right. So you need to send out at least two things that I've written. Okay. One is the recent USA Today op-ed with Jeff and me okay. about using Tylenol after surgery and how it's barbaric. Okay. And the other is something I'm going to send you right now. I'm, you've read it already. It's called Tylenol isn't so safe, but at least it works, right? And oh. that's when I take a look at the evidence or lack thereof for its efficacy. Send those two things okay. to doctors, to okay. legislators. Okay. There's no denying that there's a problem here. Yeah. Well, all that... My own doctors don't know this stuff. The scary thing, Josh, she has patients. People put so much faith in these people, but they don't know. I have sent the USA Today article was one of the first things that I brought to the Rhode Island Department of Health because I've asked them to change has to come from the health department because without the health department, I don't have any, I don't have a chance of fighting. Yeah. And the hospitals, you know, I'm in the smallest state. So I said, please, at least get involved. So you encourage these doctors to start treating pain again in the hospital. So these people don't hit the street. I mean, Tylenol for a C-section? Tylenol for a mastectomy? Are you insane? And they keep coming out with more and more and more out of U of M with, you know, Dr. Chad Brummett and and Michigan Open, the same people who put on that musical about opioids for pay, for for high school kids, where they dress like <laughs> all the about musical. it. But Josh, I would love if if you don't mind, I would love to have you back. We would love to have you back to discuss buprenorphine, what it is, what it isn't. Because my favorite articles that you do with mock interviews with Kaladni are the ones where you're talking about like breaking down pharmacologically what bup is and what it isn't. I love those; they're the best, and I think. 
it would be really helpful to hear from a, a scientist what yep. what it actually does and what it can't do. Because J- yep. Josh, you know, you're a scientist. So if anybody knows how these medications work, it's yep. you. Yeah, we could we could ask ahead of time for questions. We'll get hundreds of them in five minutes. I, would you be willing to come back on, Josh? Yeah, buprenorphine. I've largely ignored. Yeah. Oh, I could absolutely find out everything I needed to about it. It's not something yeah. I've really written about. I have no expertise. I think I saw you write about it when you were ta- when when he was talking about heroin pills and like you were separating out what really is like heroin, what isn't, all of that pharmacologically. Do you know what I'm talking about? That article? Yeah. Or you don't? Okay. That was a while ago. I kid you not. It don't don't just when you're sending stuff out. Yeah. Don't, don't just send out the op-ed, send out the Tylenol thing I just sent you. Yeah. Because okay. then, then it, it becomes really obvious that the stuff doesn't work. Right. And then okay. people might put two and two together and they'll say, hospitals are using Tylenol, but here I got a whole bunch of evidence saying it doesn't even cure a headache. Mm-hmm. So what's it going to do after a mastectomy? I would love to send that out. We'll, we'll post it on our website. I mean, in you know, in the updated guidelines, did you know that they used a study showing that Tylenol is more effective for kidney stones than morphine or, or than opioids? I think it was, I think they compared Tylenol to Demerol, I think is what they did. And they said not even, not even NSAIDs, which can be somewhat effective, but they said Tylenol, Tylenol for kidney stones. Send me that, will you? Yeah, absolutely. It's for, I'll, I'll send you where it is in the where it is in the guidelines, and I'll send you the supporting evidence. Definitely. I'd love to see that study because okay. I'll take that apart in my sleeve. Oh, excellent! All right, yeah. good. Thanks for taking time out of your day, folks. Let us know what you think about our interview with Josh Bloom, and don't forget follow all of Josh's work. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him on his website. We're going to have all the links in uh, the show's notes today. Be well. Have a great day. You keep fighting and we'll do the same. Before we go to these interviews with some patients who had experience with Tylenol instead of opioids, I want to play a short clip that we've played in previous episodes. This is a clip that is on Dr. Stefan Kertes's YouTube channel and Dr. Kertes is running a suicide study, as we all know, out of University of Birmingham in Alabama, where he's really studying what really is the relationship of opioid tapers and suicide. And we're all so grateful that he's doing this because it really seems to be something other people don't want to touch or are specifically intentionally refusing to look at. Anyway, when he was presenting his suicide study, I think it was a few years ago now, Dr. Few Berman, who we talked about in this episode and we've spoken about before, she runs an organization called Farmed Out and she's on Prop's board. And she's really hostile. In my opinion, she's hostile. I mean, you'll listen to the clip and you you decide for yourself what you think, but I think she seems quite angry that he's even talking about running a suicide study. So he's presenting the study. Dr. Few Berman pushes back. It's about an eight or nine minute clip. And I'm just going to play it really quickly here. And then we'll link in the show notes in case you want to go to Dr. Kertes's uh, YouTube channel to watch his other videos. And after we're done with that, then you'll hear the interviews with some pain patients and their experience being given Tylenol. So I really need to question you about this because I, um, where are the documented suicides of people who, um, you, you know, 
committed suicide because of opioid taper. You know, I've seen I've seen a lot a, a lot of newspaper articles quoting people saying, "Oh, it's really underreported." Oh, is that why you can't come up with an actual case? Um, I, you know, there's a there was a TV program that had the case of one person whose wife actually like handed him a gun to kill himself. I've got some issues with that. Um, I interviewed the there, wife. There is a high rate of suicide among long-term opioid users, which you did not mention. And then you've got like these, you know, Twitter things of people who are threatening suicide, which is not at all the same thing as as committing suicide. Where is your evidence that there actually is that, that where is your evidence of documented suicides from people who are tapered? So first of all, I think it's very important in a couple of things. It's great to ask for evidence. That's why I really want public health authorities to investigate suicides. Um, right off the bat. That's the most important thing, is when you initiate policy that's not supported by evidence, the very least you should do is set up a structure to collect the data concerning the outcomes of what you do. It's bizarre to not collect the data. What evidence-free policy? You've said yourself that the CDC guidelines do not actually call for a forced taper. Who's calling for a forced taper? You know, maybe this is a payer issue. The CDC's guideline itself really doesn't. Right. It really doesn't. So right. the policies so don't that are blame the CDC. Uh, the only thing I blame them for is not wanting to follow up on the recommendations from their own handpicked opioid guideline work group. When they appoint a group to give them advice and they don't follow the advice they receive, I do hold them responsible for that. I would be still concerned that they're not defending their own guideline. Those are both simple. However, the policies that I named are actually more complex. They're not set by the CDC. They involve the quality metrics that punish physicians and healthcare providers based on the number of patients at a given dose. They involve peer refusals. They involve regulations and, and some laws, but often regulations from the medical board that leave physicians with the sense that they are extraordinarily at risk if they are to continue anyone over 90. Because the Department of Justice, among others, has said we're going to use prescription patterns to figure out who to go after. So you're on notice if you're the last one standing with a patient over 90. Those enact and weaponize the guideline that has written seems pretty good to me from the CDC. But unfortunately, the people who are enacting and weaponizing the guideline have not elected to measure outcomes that are 100% available to them. I will say this. I personally have reviewed the medical charts on two patients who are in the media. One of them is the person whose wife bought him a gun. I'm glad they had people handed it to the me. article. And I both reviewed the medical chart in detail, had an expert review it, interviewed the individual and had signed consent to publish about it in the Health Affairs blog in January. This is a separate case, which I published in Slate last summer. Uh, I have personally been the person called upon to remediate individuals who are suicidal or who have actually shot themselves uh, and that did not die. Um, and therefore, I feel fairly convinced, having reviewed the charts of those people, that I know what was going on. Moreover, I'm in continuous contact with physicians who are all addiction trained, who have tons of expertise in opioids and dependence. Those physicians who I'm in contact with basically write me notes every week saying it's a disaster zone with the number of patients who are traumatically harmed. I published a case first in the Hill under a um, changed gender as a female. And then when I got official VA permission, I published that case in the uh, meeting proceedings for the Association for Medical Education Research on Substance Abuse. That case was medical harm, not suicide. Um, but in any case, I think I've made the case that the CDC guideline says, doesn't say to do something. The evidence doesn't support doing something. 
this thing is being done. There's no way you can get. There is a study of involuntary opioid uh, reduction, and the Veterans Administration, according to Lovejoy, 80% or so of opioid discontinuations are initiated by the clinician, not the patient. And that same team published a separate paper profiling the onset of suicidal action, not necessarily resulting in death, or suicidal ideation, in about, I'm thinking about 8 to 12%. What you said about pain also being a thing that induces suicidality is true. O opioid use. Opioid use is associated with suicidality. You have three, can't leave that out. All, you have three things that are all potentially simultaneously associated with harm. Pain itself, opioid dependence, the dependence itself, and the event, however we wish to interpret it clinically, as resurgent pain or untreated opioid dependence, in patients who are having opioids taken away. I would point out, you heard from Bruce, if someone is diagnosed with opioid use disorder, there's no one here saying that forced tapers are the way to go. Right. For people who have long-term pain or in high doses of opioids, the form that their dependence takes can be very benign, it can be rather unbenign, and it can qualify as full-fledged addiction. To assert that all of those people should also be subject to the very thing that we would never countenance for someone with diagnosed addiction seems to me quite bizarre when there's only a trial with a 91% failure rate to suggest it might be dangerous. So I take your point that we should document and study, and I've run two teams trying to document through health systems records events that happen over opioid discontinuation. So I spend hours every week in discussion trying to pull the data together. That's what we should do. But the people who have much larger resources to investigate outbreaks of things of concern could do that, and they're not doing it. Can you defend not investigating? Yeah, because you haven't shown there's an outbreak. Nobody's shown there's an outbreak yet. So that's what, you know, so, we use government resources to, to foresee something, you know, after there's actually a signal. And a TV, you know, a TV show and a case here and there is not necessarily. So the note I received was about 54 where the names and identifiers were known. I've personally witnessed, the physicians that I work with have witnessed, and I've personally reviewed cases. And the question I would have for you is at what point does something go from being, it almost seems like a little bit of a, a double standard here, sort of, it's not an outbreak until you have large databases to show it, but we can't commit the resources to investigate until you have large databases to show it. It's not so large databases, documented cases, so I'm well, glad you're writing, right? in the press after records review. And that's nothing compared to the number of people on opioids who commit suicide. And one of the things that you left out is opioid-induced depression, which is... I, I, I would say you've misconstrued if you thought I wanted to minimize the harms from opioids. I, that, that was, that's a misapprehension of what I was trying to say. There are significant harms that I tried to say up front about the, of the nature of prescribing opioids. If you can avoid them, please do. There are many, many harms associated with them. Although there are some people where they naturally are the thing that has to be used. But um, my goal here really was not to suggest that there was not a massive amount of harm occurring as a result of both prescriptions and illicit opioids ongoing for the last 15 years. If anybody heard that, they missed my message. That was not what I was trying to say. What I am saying is there's a separate population or a related population that is traumatized now. I wouldn't have spent two years working on this day and night unless I was quite convinced.
I do apologize for the sound quality of that recording. If you would like to listen to the original video, I have linked in the show notes the full clip on Dr. Kertes's YouTube channel. And now that you listened to this, I am so curious, what do you think about the tone of her voice? Am I being a little bit overly sensitive or reactionary? Does she not sound angry? Or I don't even know what it is in her voice that it is. She just sounds mad. Like to me, I can hear the contempt in her voice for pain patients on opioids. But I would love to hear what you think. If you agree with me or disagree with me, you can email me at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com. You can comment on Spotify if that's where you're listening to this or find me on Twitter at IBDgirl76. I just am really, really curious what other people think about this. Okay, now that you listened to that recording, I am going to play one really quick interview with a patient. She had an experience with being offered Tylenol only for breast cancer surgery, and I want you to hear from her mouth what actually happened. And then after that, I'm going to read some other patient stories. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, our episode about Tylenol and post-surgical pain. I had asked on Twitter if anyone had experience with this and you reached out and I really appreciate your being willing to tell your story. So can you briefly introduce yourself? Yes. Say thank you. Yeah. My name's Carol and I live here in Utah. I was diagnosed with breast cancer last year and I do have some pre-existing neuropathy. And then I um, had a foot fracture, a toe fracture that didn't heal. And it sort of turned into a cold type of chronic regional pain syndrome. So I'm sort of a neurological mess at the moment. I'm not currently under any medication for pain management. So I'm sort of on my own. So I do a lot of, you know, natural things. I mean, I do everything I can, you know, that I can try. And we all do that, right? To try to figure out how to to manage our pain. But um, yeah, so my, my experience with surgical procedure and Tylenol was last year with the breast cancer diagnosis. Okay. You want to tell me what happened, like a little bit about yeah. that situation? Were you having symptoms that led you to be diagnosed with breast cancer or was it just a normal screening? Yeah, it was just a normal screening. With COVID, I think a lot of us just neglected our screenings. I mean, at least yeah. I did. And luckily I, I did it in time to catch the breast cancer because it was small. It's, you know, it's kind of the okay. uh, generic type of breast cancer, you know, not something excessively aggressive or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I had a... A screening. Okay. Um, and at the screening, the, the, the technician ominously gave me a card and said, um, you're going to need this. And it was to a breast cancer surgeon that was local in, in the hospital. I live very close to a, just a small hospital, a, a local hospital. So I, I, you know, I don't have to go all the way to Salt Lake, to the University of Utah, to the Huntsman Center. And um, I looked up this particular doctor and she had extreme extremely good reviews online, lots of reviews, like over a hundred reviews and everyone was very pleased with her. And so I made an appointment and went to see her. We spoke about, you know, she looked me over and this was before I had my biopsy and she looked me over and said, yeah, you know, we need to to schedule biopsy and some follow-up stuff and let's go ahead and schedule your surgery in June. This was in May. This was a year ago. Okay. So in the paperwork she gave me, and I tried to explain to her my situation. You know, I was, I told her, I've got full body neuropathy. You know, if you do this, because she gave me two options because I didn't want radiation. I said, you know, I've already got, I don't need more neuropathy. (laughs) I've got enough. And so she's like, okay, then you have to have a mastectomy. 
because if and this was a small tumor you know my tumor was 1.7 centimeters right so it wasn't a big tumor and or if you get a lobectomy you know you have to have the radiation and I'm like but I've got neuropathy and I said okay if you if you do these other things then I need you to promise me that you will do nerve blocks I'm going to need a lot of nerve blocks and I'm going to need pain meds afterwards she didn't really say anything you know she just kind of I mean she did say she's never seen a patient like me before with all the neuropathy background that's when she started mentioning the Tylenol you go for a screening the condition which they don't usually do basically tells you you have a cancer and that you'll need to see a surgeon you go see the surgeon and she had very good reviews and she seemed very nice right and then tell her her chronic pain condition and that makes me wonder is that what made her talk about Tylenol or is this just her go-to with everybody because you know the CDC talks about uh, the exclusion of cancer but it sure Mm. seems anyone who has a chronic pain condition they don't get that cancer exclusion like everyone else does no I think it it was in her it was in the folder she gave me she gave me a folder and she went through her spill right I mean she looks like she had talk that she gives everyone right and she personalizes it bases you know based on what kind of cancer they have and where it's located and stuff like that. Because she, you know, there were pictures uh, on there and she was drawing where my tumor was and this, that, and the other. And then it came to the pain management part. There was a blurb about, okay, you know, we we will give you opioid medication, but Tylenol works just as well. And there was a huge, large paragraph with citing some articles or something like that about how Tylenol was sufficient. And that set up my alarm. The minute she started talking about that, and then she went off on it. Do you know what I'm saying? Then she was like, yes, and Tylenol is... She, she focused on that. And I told her, I said, well, you know, if Tylenol worked for me, I would be using it. I, I, would, I would buy stock in the company. I would be the poster child for Tylenol if it worked. It, it doesn't work for my neuropathy. It does nothing for me. I mean, and it's not like you're on opioids already. So it's not even like in her mind, she could be like, oh, you're drug seeking. She just, is she young? Is she a young doctor? I, she's probably in her 40s, mid 40s. Because I do find the younger doctors tend to, the younger providers tend to have bought into this whole, yes. like, no opioids, Tylenol and Advil work just as well, blah, blah, blah. So she gives you all this information. And then how did you feel when you left that appointment? Did you feel uneasy? Like, were you? Yeah. Could- so I yeah. felt very uneasy. I felt okay. like, yeah, she's nice enough, but she's not really taking me seriously. You know, right. she's never seen a patient like me. And then the hospital didn't have a nurse case manager for breast cancer patients, they had no support group. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know what? They're going to cut into me yeah, and I'm not going to have any support group yeah. because this isn't like MD Anderson or the Huntsman Center. And do I have time to switch? Should I go to right. MD Anderson? I did the biopsy before I saw her because she mentioned, why did you have the conscious sedation? Because I, I told the people, if you're taking a biopsy, you, I don't want local. I need I need you to take care of me with this. A couple of the people groused about it, but in the end, the doctor did not. Thanks for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, just a quick break from this podcast to tell you about our brand new Patreon page, which we launched on June 1st. 
We are so stoked about launching this Patreon subscription page. The messages have been so encouraging from people, but what is Patreon? Bev and I have dedicated the past six years of our lives to bringing awareness to the untreated pain crisis. We do this by organizing rallies. Bev has invested thousands and thousands of hours in research. In my opinion, it's really important to bring awareness to the people who are suffering, but more importantly, the people who have caused the suffering. And I think Patreon is the perfect platform. But what is Patreon? This is a subscription. Really important for you folks to know, though, you're not losing anything. Some people maybe don't want to sign on to Patreon, and that's fine. You're still going to be able to access all of our free resources on our website, thedoctorpatientforum.com, plus all of our Facebook pages, and most importantly, the amazing podcast, The Doctor Patient Forum Podcast. Bev, can you explain to people what they're going to be receiving with the three different categories that are being offered on Patreon? Sure. We have a three tiers, $5 DPF supporter, $15 a month DPF advocate, and $30 a month DPF warrior. We know people have been asking about that coaching call. They get four coaching calls in a 12-month period for DPF warrior. That's the only tier that has a coaching call, but all of the tiers get an extra video podcast at least one per month. There'll probably be more than one. In the higher tiers, they get before and after. When we're talking to guests, some of the most fun discussion is before or after the actual podcast. So that will be in the higher tiers. But this $5 tier, they still get a lot. I'm going to be posting mostly daily. I might skip a day here and there, but mostly daily, I will be posting every important article and study and event that happens. So nobody will have to miss that again. And every month, I'm going to be keeping a running log of everything important. And I will post those monthly blogs with all the links so people won't miss it because you know what happens on our Facebook page, Claudia, is that I post it and then people lose it. It just, people scroll on by because you don't buried. see it anymore. Right. It gets yeah. buried. And the reason this DPF supporter, this is actually one of my favorite categories because if you don't know what's happening in your state, Bev is going to be posting it on the supporter tier. So if there's yes. legislation, if there is a hearing Correct. coming up in your neck of the woods, if there's a meet and greet coming up in your neck of the woods, if there's a rally, a support group, that's all going to be listed on the DPF right. supporter category. Now, the reason reason the DPF warrior category is so, so important for so many people is because we receive hundreds of messages on a monthly basis of people wanting to connect with us, to get on the yes. phone and to advocate. And we would need an army of people to advocate. And while hopefully in the future, we will be able to really spend more than just 30 minutes with people. But for the time being, the DPF warrior category, we're going to get on the phone with you for 30 minutes. And yeah. we're going to coach you what you need yeah. help with getting this. Maybe you need help gathering information for your next doctor's appointment, or maybe you're looking to, uh, some, of, some of you folks may or may not know, I'm a fitness competitor. I get on stage once a year. I compete. I bring awareness to the untreated pain crisis. Maybe you just want some fit tips, or maybe you want to learn more about these government paid experts. And that's 
that's why that DPF warrior category is so, so important. And Bev, what do you like the best about the DPF advocate category? I think my favorite part of this advocate category is the fact that they can message us their questions. So as you were talking about, we get messaged on every single social media platform, plus our cell phones, text messaging and emails and phone calls. And it's hundreds per week from each of us, for each of us. And there's no way for us, we try so hard to stay on top of it, but there's just no way to answer all of these questions. So in the advocate tier, every month, they'll be able to message us their questions throughout the month on Patreon. And then at the beginning of the next month, Claudia and I are going to be recording a question and answer session where we will be answering every one of your questions as long as time allows right there on the recording. And then we'll post it and you can watch it. So I'm excited about that because right now I feel so bad. I don't have time. I just can't answer everyone's questions. It's, it's too much, you know, and, and we'll still, like you said, we still get the podcast, the websites, all of that is still there, but this is more one-on-one they can connect with us this is a way that we could organize interacting with all of the members that that make all of this possible anyway and most importantly it's a great way to raise money so we can pay for certain things that we need you know right now i don't have a scanner we don't have software and this patreon subscription page this is the best way to not only help people, but to help people while raising money and making it affordable for everybody. And the DPF supporter, the DPF advocate, and the DPF warrior, there's something there for everyone. So take a look yep. around for Welcome. We look forward to seeing you all. You keep fighting and we'll do the same. Thank you. Our Patreon page link is patreon.com slash the doctor patient forum. It's also listed in the show notes. Hope to see you over there. I asked on the national doctor patient forum page on Facebook, if anyone had an experience uh, being given Tylenol after either major surgery or with an acute issue, thinking that I would get just a couple of stories. But there were over 150 responses. My plan was to interview some of them, but these stories need to be told. So I'm just going to read some of the posts. This is only a small sample of them. If you'd like to see the rest of them, go to the Dr. Patient Forum national page on Facebook, and I'll attach the link in the show notes. I'm I'm going to read some of these responses. A friend of mine was sent home with nothing after open heart surgery. She passed about a year later. After my surgery last month, I was given Tylenol IV. They gave me very little of anything else. I've had about 12 surgeries in my life and never have I suffered an excruciating pain after any surgery like this one. They had me sitting up, crying in pain. I was wide awake, suffered every day in the hospital. Colectomy and vaginal repair from my hysterectomy. When my stepdaughter had a cancerous ovary removed in 2021, she was denied all post-op medications, save the dreaded new Tylenol and ibuprofen protocol. As she howled alone in the hospital bed, no family, friend, nor advocate allowed in because of COVID restrictions, she was told, I'm sorry, we can't give you anything stronger. Don't want you to get addicted. I've only been able to have Tylenol after spinal fusion surgery, and he actually messed up and pinned both of my nerves in the rods, and instead of going into fix, he went in to cut out the vertebrae, then insisted on doing bilateral joint fusion, and I was still only given Tylenol after surgery. I've since found out that the bilateral joint fusion was done backwards, and that's why I've been in pain since all of the surgeries. 
I had a full hysterectomy two years ago. I consulted with my pain management doctor as I tried to always adhere to the contract. He said I could take ibuprofen or Tylenol, that no pain relief aside from my normal tramadol would be needed or given. When I tried to advocate for myself, he stated that his wife was an OB and that in other countries, they never give pain relief for any laparoscopic procedures. The surgeon, when I told her this, rolled her eyes and said that she would be treating me. She would prescribe as she saw fit and would deal with my pain management. I got lucky and I wasn't discharged from pain management. My surgery was more complicated than they thought it would be and I had complications after anesthesia. I could have never survived on Tylenol. I believe I took oxycodone for a week and then moved to just my tramadol. I had a hysterectomy and was sent home with Tylenol only. Two days later, I went to my local ER in such horrible pain I couldn't walk. The ER doctor was horrified that I was treated as if it was minor surgery and went out of his way to provide adequate pain relief and write a prescription for the next several weeks of my recovery. This is from Rhonda. She is one of our original members. Her husband recently passed away from brain cancer. When Larry had a football-sized tumor along with his kidney removed, I walked in the hospital room to see IV Tylenol hanging there. He had a 10-inch incision. My 10-year-old granddaughter broke her wrist. They gave her nothing. It was broken in two places and needed surgery. She got so sick taking just ibuprofen and Tylenol. Then she had surgery and they put a pin in her wrist. After surgery, she was given pain meds in her IV. She was sent home with nothing because she can't swallow pills and they said there was no liquid prescription pain medication, which we all know is a lie anyway. My father had cardiac surgery, plus a pacemaker placed, and he was given Tylenol only. My cousin's mother-in-law in East Texas had colon cancer surgery last August. They gave her Tylenol only. She nearly bounced off the bed in pain. My client just had two breast cancer surgeries, and they sent her home with only Tylenol each time. The first breast surgeon I saw refused to prescribe pain meds, said to take Tylenol and ibuprofen. I found another surgeon. I waited two more days before going back, still given Tylenol until surgery to place a stent. I lost that kidney in October of last year due to the damage of constant stones and obstructions that weren't treated properly. My daughter broke her arm and was given Tylenol for it in extreme pain for weeks, waited for the orthopedic doc and still left with just Tylenol. My husband recently had a 10-hour surgery to remove his bladder and prostate for cancer. He was sent home with Tylenol and lidocaine patches. My ex-husband fell and broke his hip badly. A rod had to be put in. They only gave him Tylenol. I had two options after my C-section that I had staples for, Tylenol or ibuprofen. She told me to lose weight 18 hours after having my baby via C-section. Then I'd feel better, she said. I was treated horribly after my daughter was born. My 92-year-old mother fell and had three broken bones, the pelvic wrist and cheek, and was given Advil and Tylenol. We argued, and as soon as we got a 5 milligram Norco, she was able to do PT and was on the road to recovery. I don't know why they're being so stingy. It's not good. I had my rotator cuff repaired, and the morning after, I woke up around 4 a.m. crying. I asked for pain medication, and the nurse said, sure, I'll be right back. She seemed gleeful, smiling at me, as if she knew I was going to be surprised. She came in with two Tylenol. I said, I'm in bad pain. Tylenol isn't even recommended for this type of pain. She just smiled and said, that's what the doctor said to give you. I laid in pain and cried, trying not to move. I called my ride, and after I got home, I asked my internal medicine doctor if she would call in something stronger. You have to beg the nurse or doctor who have total control while you're in the hospital. I broke my shoulder in five places in September of 2022. They only wanted to give me Tylenol and said, alternate with Motrin every four hours in the ER. I was in so much pain. 
I'm a primary care doctor. I get this call every week now. My surgeon ordered me Tylenol and told me if I wanted something stronger, I have to call you. He doesn't write them. My friend had open heart surgery a few months ago and woke up to an IV drip of Tylenol. He begged and pleaded for pain relief. And they said that's all that was required for that surgery. Now I had the same surgery in 2017 and was medicated properly. But the idea that I was gonna be sawed and wired and only given Tylenol, I can't imagine that amount of pain. Now, again, this is only a few of these stories. I wanna point out a few things. First, I would say at least 90 to 95% of the responses were women. And most of those women, it was female surgeries and a good portion of them were for cancer. So this idea that cancer is an exclusion isn't true and it's ridiculous because first of all there's no difference between cancer and non-cancer pain it's been stated by the fda there absolutely is no difference in the way that our bodies feel cancer for non-cancer pain but even more than that let's just assume there is at what point does cancer pain become non-cancer pain is it as soon as you wake up from surgery because the cancer is removed is it six months after declared cancer free is it ever considered non-cancer pain what about the effects of chemotherapy? Is that not cancer pain anymore? Because let me tell you what's happening. We have doctors promoting opioid-free breast cancer surgery. We have doctors out of Michigan Open, University of Michigan, writing post-op opioid guidelines for adults and for children. And they say, oh, these are only guidelines. But we know guidelines are never only guidelines. So it is my opinion Anyone who writes these guidelines and promotes them and implements them, helps other doctors implement them and teaches other doctors about them. In my opinion, it is their responsibility to make sure that these doctors are well-educated, that if someone needs more medication, you don't treat them like the stories we just heard because it's not so easy to get more medication. So let's just say, and then the woman who has this mastectomy is in agony and she calls, or her husband calls, or her child calls. And the doctor's like, you shouldn't need more than that. Or, I don't feel comfortable writing that. Or, you may become addicted. Or, I don't really believe you're in pain, you're just drug seeking. Go to the ER if you need something. So then this patient goes to the ER, and the ER doctor's like, sure, I'll give you something. But then they call the surgeon, and then they come back, and they're like, I can't give you anything. And then they put drug seeking in the chart. This concept that these are only guidelines and if anyone needs more, it's easy to get, it's bullshit because it is not true. The number of calls we get from people who are not even chronic pain patients, who have major, major surgery, cancer or not, and can get Tylenol only, and they're told, oh, Tylenol and Motrin alternating is just as good as opioids. It's insane. It's ridiculous. But I'm going to tell you something. If you don't help us fight, this will be you one day or a loved one, a family member. You might think this will never be you because you had surgery 20 years ago and they gave you enough medication to keep you out of pain. But let me tell you something that's not true. It will be you. My daughter had a kidney stone. She was 14. They would only give her oral Tylenol. I had to begged for a Toradol shot. Toradol. Now my kid had hydronephrosis and a kidney stone. Oral Tylenol and a heating pack on her back they gave her. Treated her like she was lying. And I had to beg for Toradol. 
She didn't even need an opioid. Once they gave her that Toradol shot, she was a lot better. So I'm not even saying opioids all the time. But if someone is in pain, listen to your patient. And if you're a doctor, help us fight. Help us fight. I get it that you're scared. I understand why. It is crazy what is going on. But please help us fight so this madness can come to an end. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information.